Hello, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm Lawrence Krauss. Alan Stern is one of the most experienced explorers of deep space we have in the United States today. He's been involved in 24 missions on the Space Shuttle and the Hubble Space Telescope, as well as being PI of the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. He's chief scientist on the Moon Explorer mission. And he was associate administrator of NASA. I've known Alan for some time, and he's excited and energetic, and he has what it takes to generate and maintain the enthusiasm and organization necessary for decades of exhausting work involved in space exploration. I wanted to talk to him about the challenges of doing deep space missions and also the promises and opportunities they provide for learning about ourselves. Patreon subscribers can find the full video of this program immediately at patreon.com slash origins podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Alan, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, Lawrence. Great to be here. And before we do anything, I want to show your book because I'm a big fan of it and, uh, and the story that it tells. And we'll be talking about this. So uh, um, you just gave it to me, too. So it's great to have my own signed copy. Thanks uh, a lot. I'm sure you'll appreciate this. I call that my 100 Lost Weekends because it was two <laughs> years of weekends. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good read, and people should read it before. And, and the story that it tells is one we're going to be talking about, which is this boldly going where no one has gone before, literally. So let me start. In fact, there's a picture on here. Mm-hmm. Pluto, planet or not? Planet. Me too. Now, why, why do you think it's a planet? Because my, my daughter did her f- grade four project on Pluto, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to make her go back to grade four to, and, re- and redo that. But why is it a planet to you? No, you know, it, uh, there's, there's a bit of a story here, but, yeah. you know, we have undergone this revolution in both planetary science and astrophysics sure, sure. that uh, you go back a generation, you go back to, say, 1990, and all we knew of were the nine planets of our solar system. Sure. And then the Kuiper Belt was discovered, the third zone of our solar system, mm. and not only did we find lots of small primordial, what we call planetesimals, out yeah. of what, you know, planets were made from, but we started finding the cohort population for Pluto, other dwarf planets. Sure. And uh, it freaked some people out because when, when the world was quaint and our knowledge was limited and we only knew of nine planets, you could know all their names. Yeah, exactly. And then as the numbers grew, believe it or not, scientists, people who you think would respect <laughs> data, started to say, oh, this will tarnish our reputation. You know, school kill- children won't be able to remember it. And... Uh, the International Astronomical Union freaked out in 2006 and said, no, we're going to keep the number at eight. That's it. You know what I said in response? We're going to go back to eight states now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, are we going to limit the periodic table to stop at beryllium? Yeah, well, I mean, the point (laughs) is, it's and and this is the point, one of the reasons I asked you is, is that, People say, what defines a planet? And of course, it's a really... Va- it, so actually, there's a really good physical definition. It's called the geophysical mm-hmm. planet definition. Yeah. And it's very simple. It says an, a planet is an object in space that's large enough to be rounded by its own self-gravity. I did an experiment once um, at the, uh, the, the uh, Rose Planetarium. Yeah. Uh, Neil Tyson had me there, and we were talking about the same subject. We set this up in advance. Yeah, oh, good, because yeah, I've, I've hit Neil about Pluto many times whenever I'm there. Yeah, well, <laughs> Neil's selling a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but this was in 1999, and uh, uh, we, we got to talking about this, and then we had set it up. I had his ushers pass out a, a blank sheet of paper to every person in this 1,100-seat theater. And we said, draw a picture of a planet. And then we collected them and we counted the number that were round and the number that were squares, triangles, or other shapes. 1100 to zero. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've heard people say, well, it's not just that they're round, but they also must control gravitationally sort of uh, sweep out the region around them, be the dominant uh, 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 right. gravitational object. And I, the bottom line is, and, and one of the reasons I want to bring it up is, is it reminded me of uh, when I've worried about this silly debate about whether Pluto is a planet or not. Uh, and as I say, for those of us who, as old as me and, and you, it's, it's going to be a planet because we grew up with it that way, is, was Richard Feynman, actually. There's a story when Feynman was young, 
he went, his father used to take him for walks in the woods and, you know, talk about nature. And they'd be looking at these birds and he'd say, well, you know, what's the name of that bird? What's it? And his father said to them, the name doesn't matter. We don't learn anything by, by, by the label of a bird. What you learn about, what's important to know is how the bird behaves, how, how it goes for food and, 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 and all of the aspects of its behavior. That tells you something, but the name is unimportant. Right. right. But you know, science is ultimately reductionist. Yeah. Right. We try to, to take a large number of disparate facts and make sense out of them. And uh, categorization is important. Now about this gravitational criteria, yeah. um, we don't require the stars control their zones in galaxies, for example. Uh, nowhere else in astronomy is there any definition that was specifically engineered to limit the number of objects to something that you can memorize. Yeah. It's very anti-scientific if you think about it. But it is important that we as planetary scientists, and I know you're an astrophysicist mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and physicist, mm. but in planetary science, we need to understand which objects are and are not the central topic of our field. Sure, sure. And, and we want a definition that works. Now, the interesting thing mm -hmm. is, is after the 2006 IAU vote, mm -hmm. the press completely bought it. And then the textbooks changed and teachers started teaching eight planets, Pluto's not a planet um, kind of thing, neither the other mm -hmm. dwarf planets. Mm -hmm. um, planetary scientists more or less ignored that. Yeah. If you go to planetary science, meetings where people are giving talks, they'll use the word planet, not just to describe Pluto yeah. as a matter of course, yeah. uh, and the other dwarf planets, but even large satellites that orbit other planets. Sure. So from a planetary science standpoint, the objects that are planets, are, it doesn't matter what they orbit, what they're near, it, your zip code, your location has nothing to do with it. It's the intrinsics of the object. The same way that a biologist doesn't care if a, to categorize it. Uh, um, a given being in its species, whether it's in a herd or a yeah, flock or yeah. owned by itself. And Phil Metzger, who's mm -hmm. a professor at the University of Central Florida, Phil did a, <laughs> did a paper yesterday, uh -huh. uh, last year, uh -huh. fascinating paper. He did, he used some machine learning techniques to look at all the planetary science literature uh -huh. since 2006 and determine how many papers written by planetary scientists are using the IAU Definition. Definition. Do you know what he found? None. The Zero. only, none. He looked at some, I, I may have the number wrong. He looked at tens of thousands of research papers. He found the only papers that use the definition were papers about the definition. Oh, okay. And that every research paper in every journal uses the geophysical planet definition, because maybe it, without saying it, because it's useful. Because it's physical. That's and the, the point. And the IAU definition is just not useful. Well, in fact, that, I mean, that's the point I, I think Feynman was getting at, too. I mean, the idea is that you want to define these things in a way that des describes something that's useful. Just a name itself doesn't mean anything. But, but if you, if with a geophysical definition, def defines a physical aspect that's relevant for understanding later on the dynamics of that object and the objects around it. And I think we should be teaching in schools, it's wonderful, we've discovered thousands of star systems with other planets. Mm -hmm. We've discovered that our solar system is teeming with small planets that outnumber the giant planets and the terrestrial planets combined. This is a, how discovery works. Paradigms change. Exactly. And you know, where I live in Boulder, Colorado, mm -hmm. if you look to the West, you see precisely four beautiful mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have names. Um, there, there's Flagstaff Mountain, Bear Mountain, uh, Green Mountain, and Sinitas. Mm. And uh, the Arapaho Indians used to live there. And if you were an Arapaho living in that valley, you might think these four big tall things, mm -hmm. there are four of them in the universe. Yeah, yeah. Unless one day you scaled one of them and you saw this sea of mountains that are the Rockies, it would change your point of view. A lot of people think it's, it's it, are, are afraid of that change. In particular, that's the whole point of science is that terms we use and ideas we have change. And that, that's not bad, that's called learning. That's what Precisely. it's all about. That's Precisely. And that's why I say that the IAU's reaction to it was anti-scientific. Yeah, I think yeah, that, I, thought I can it, see that. I can see that. And I, I honestly think, think it was the worst pedagogical moment uh, in, in decades in science, because I've actually had people say to me in the public that, you know, because the definition of a planet can change and because it's arbitrary, it's based upon a vote, uh, that... Uh, you know, the, I, I'm not buying the story about climate change yeah. because that can be arbitrary. People yeah. just 
vote. I've often said the purpose of education and science is to make us uncomfortable. And the idea that, that we define things to be comfortable, this is a pl eight planets is comfortable because we can name them. It's the fact that the fact that the planets we named in all of human history up to a few years ago were we're just a drop in a cosmic iceberg of, of planets is, is wonderful. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something right. we're upset about. It should be right. something we're amazed about. And when I was a little boy, you know, I remember being taught about rivers. Mm -hmm. I very specifically remember that we had to mem memorize the names of the eight great rivers, like the Ganges mm -hmm. and the Nile and right. so forth, the Mississippi. And all you had to know is the rest you could look up in a book, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's how we ought to treat planets. Well, You're going to know the important ones, the famous ones, the original ones. And the rest you can look up in a book. Yeah, when once you have a few, it reminds me of a, of a when I was in uh, New Zealand, um, speaking of large numbers, uh, this, uh, this fellow had bored these, um, these sheep from, the, sheep, the people use sheep to cut their lawns there. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so he'd, he'd, he'd got this new property and he got uh, 10 sheep and he realized it had to be sheared. So he called, this is a true story, he called up to find out about shearing. And the guy said, sure, we can shear your sheep. And the guy goes, uh, okay, how many do you have? And he goes, 10. And he goes, 10,000? And he goes, no, 10. He goes, do they all have names? Because <laughs> that's the difference, 10 versus 10,000. Well, I'm glad we, I, was, I, I thought that might be just a, uh, a chance to kick off, but um, this, I, the talk about planets is pretty important, I think. And in fact, you have helped lead an exploration of one of the most interesting objects in the solar system. And in fact, it, when you mentioned 2006 as the IU, 2006 was another important year, right? Take us through the New Horizon history a little bit. Yeah, the, 2006 was the year that we launched this expedition from, uh, from Earth to cross the solar system. When did, when, you know, I want people to realize what kind of dedication this, I, I couldn't do what you've done. I could not sort of say, I'm going to as a theoretical physicist, I write a paper and I hit and I can go to another area and I can go to another area. The idea that I'm going to start something that the, the fruits of which may not be, could be decades away, literally, takes a kind of bravery, an intellectual bravery that's amazing. But when did you start? Take me back even further. When, when did the whole notion of New Horizons start? Well, it didn't start as New Horizons. Mm -hmm. It started just as the Voyager mission you know, this epic exploration of what we now call the middle zone of our solar system, mm -hmm. the exploration of the giant planets by Voyagers 1 and 2, yeah, sure. was wrapping up in 1989. And Voyager 2 was approaching Neptune, and everybody knew this was the end of the line for exploring worlds with mm -hmm. Voyager, that it would go on out into the nothingness to explore the heliosphere and interstellar space if sure. it lived that long. But no more planets, no more flybys. And uh, I was just finishing my PhD that year, and uh, along with some young professors and postdocs and a couple of graduate students, we thought there's a little unfinished business. At that time, the Kuiper Belt was not known. Yeah. It had been conjectured since mid-century. Sure. But the, uh, the, no one had discovered any objects in the Kuiper Belt except Pluto. But mm -hmm. so there was no realization. Yeah. Pluto really was, looked like unfinished business. A third type of object, not a terrestrial planet, not a giant planet. It, it, we thought of it as a forensic clue, if you will, to how our solar system formed. And it turned out to be quite a clue because it was a hint that everything else was, was out, out there. there. Yeah, it was this but the tip. we didn't know that in yeah, yeah, But yeah. with this mix of unfinished exploration business, why would we explore eight of the nine planets and not the ninth? And the, the, the scientific potential, we started to drum up the case for this. And we okay. went to scientific... Colloquia, we went to meetings, American Geophysical Union. I was going to ask Union, about that, because, that kind of because science, especially big science projects, there's a lot of sociology as well as science. And to get something to happen, it's, it's kind of like lobbying for an Academy Award or anything else. It's not just, I mean, you have to, you have to convince the community, you have to convince the funding agencies. Yeah. And the, I assume this, well, for you as a young person, it was a learning process. But I, if you want to talk about that at, yeah, uh, it as was, well. It was for all of us. And yeah. we, we dubbed ourselves the Pluto Underground. Oh, okay. Uh, there had been a decade <laughs> before a, gr a group of similar age then yeah. in yeah. the early 80s called the Mars Underground. underground they yeah. were very successful. Yeah. Okay. So we said, we'll be the Pluto okay. Underground. Okay. And you were right. successful as and, it turned out. And we were just learning as we went. Uh -huh. And we were uh, very young and challenged by much more senior people. Mm -hmm who said, you know, uh, it's, it's an afterthought in the solar system and it's not going to be very important and it's a long way to go and why don't we do some missions closer to home, things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but we were persistent and the case was good. And as it rose through the advisory committee structure, uh, it, it, um, it really stuck. Unfortunately, though, because of the vagaries of 
what was happening in NASA uh, in the 90s, it took us 12 years to go uh, from uh, people around a table with, why don't we try and do this, Mm -hmm. to uh, NASA releasing uh, a call for proposals to actually do the mission. In between, there was study after study after study and lots of money spent. Nothing ever got off the drawing board. Nothing ever got out of the gate. How did those young scientists, though, keep... keep I mean, again, in my field, I've, in, in the field I came from, which is particle physics, is, you know, the experimentalists have big accelerators. And some of the young people uh, uh, are working ten, 10 years on their PhD and, before, and, and longer before they, an experiment even gets started. But how do people keep their jobs uh, at, during that time when you, when you have to publish and, and yeah. you have to produce and, yet, and it's going through advisory committees? Well, uh, it's actually very analogous. You know, um, uh, all of us work on a lot of things at once. Yeah. Right? Well, that's important. So, I, I guess so, that's important. So for during you. the period of the 90s, I think I published 150 papers. Yeah. I was probably involved in a dozen space missions on teams. I don't mean proposals, actually missions yeah. that were being built and flown. I was yeah. principal investigator on a whole series of suborbital sounding rockets, uh, principal investigator in shuttle experiments, PI on um, uh, ultraviolet spectroscopy, instruments that flew on comet missions and, and uh, lunar missions and others. And so all of us, you know, are wearing a bunch of different hats and just part of and what we're doing to. is the advocacy at that time. That's the point. To get you, have to, you, have to, you have to keep your focus on it, but you can't, you can't, it can't be your sole focus because you couldn't survive. Right. It's, a, it's an interesting so juggling. I, you know, I do realize that um, having done, uh, having been the leader of uh, the farthest exploration of worlds mm. uh, and the exploration of Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, that I'm typecast a little bit like, you know, the, the, the cast on Gilligan's Island. It's the only thing people remember you for. Mm-hmm. I've been on 29 space missions yeah, but now. People, yeah, I've led 15 on, on 15. And, and, and yet this is the only one people think I ever worked on. But it's not bad to be remembered for something. I'll tell you that. It's, I mean, it's better than the alternative, well, I suppose. It's certainly more interesting to the, to the kind of people that are listening to and, this and than least, ultraviolet spectroscopy. Yeah, well, that's true. But in, in this case, as a successful leader, which... Which so I, I interrupted you, but so two th- so you've got twelve years of of pushing through these committees, and then what? Well, so then NASA agreed after much strife, and we we tell this story. It's very much a people story mm-hmm. and story of persistence, as you said. Uh, ultimately, NASA issued an announcement of opportunity mm-hmm. and a call, essentially a call for proposals that had to meet certain criteria. You must arrive at Pluto for a certain cost within a certain time frame. Uh, you, you, you can only use uh, this or that technologies. You can't, you know, uh, have to invent fusion drive or something. Yeah. Uh, and five teams formed and competed. And our team was very much the David and the David and Goliath battle. Oh, really? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And the, and the, the book tells the story mm-hmm. in Chasing New Horizons yeah. um, uh, of why we were the David and how we uh, knew we were that. We were the underdogs and we were going to have to work harder and have a better proposal in every respect. And we won. Um, and, uh, you know, I've done many missions with our main competitor back then, the mm-hmm. Jet Propulsion Lab. Yeah. They are legendary. Yeah, sure. They, they invented how to explore the solar system. Mm-hmm. But the way that this competition turned out, I was competing with their arch rival, uh, with them as an arch rival, and they were competing with us as an arch rival because they didn't want to lose their franchise, that they were the yeah. sole entity doing the exploration of the outer solar system, what was then called the outer solar system. Mm. And, uh, and we beat them at that. And now the, the way it works there, it, there's no, there's never any, as has sometimes happened in, in, again, in different fields, there, there's no, uh, NASA doesn't say, well, you, we like you both. Can you work together or anything like that? Sometimes there are forced marriages like yeah, but, that, but they don't work no. that well, I guess. Uh, forced mar- well, you know, I shouldn't say. I have some friends uh, who have forced marriages, and uh, they were fine. Scientifically? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, yeah. you know, I've, I've actually been on a couple of those, and one worked and one didn't. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in this case, it didn't. They didn't propose that. They said, the New Horizons team wins. That's, this team doesn't win. Do you, th- do you think it's, it was w- one of the reasons you might have been successful is because you guys have been thinking for so long about this, or no? I'm convinced that that's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we were running scared. We knew that we were the underdogs. We had uh, less experience at, um, at uh, the exploration of the planets, yeah. even though we had, I think, the stronger scientific team, the stronger concept, mm-hmm. uh, and we had the drive to really make it happen. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is, this is just like business. Yeah. We won it, and 
uh, our competitors were so shaken up at losing their franchise that they went to Congress and had it canceled. Oh, wow. Right. And all of a sudden we're back to square zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won, and, but we lost. Yeah. Wow. And so it became a, a, a bare knuckles fight. And you know, it's unfortunate. Um, well, it's, I mean, but science is, you know, science, there's a difference between science and scientists. I keep trying, always trying to remind people that science works in spite of scientists often. Scientists are people. They have passions. They, in reasons, a slave of passion. And as Hume said, and, and, uh, and there's all sorts of issues, but the wonderful thing is the science ultimately overcomes that kind of par- parochialism. But but you know, so we realize that science is a human enterprise, and there's no reason we should pretend it isn't. Right. Uh, but the ultimate goals and what comes out of it is independent of the of the rivalries or whatever. I mean, Pluto is what Pluto is, and the fact that if the, the mission works, we discover things that change our picture of our place in the universe. Exactly, and. Uh... Uh, fortunately, it did all work out. We did ultimately get it funded. How, so did you have to do an end run or, any, or anything like that? Again, I'm, I'm thinking uh, my friends at LIGO at the gravitational mm-hmm. wave, there's a great history of all the different efforts when that was died and was reborn several times. So I've skipped over most yeah, of the of tales. Course. But, but you know, I like to say if Pluto had been a cat, it would have been dead long ago <laughs> because cats only get nine <laughs> yeah. lives. Yeah. We got it. it took so many tries and so many attempts and there was so much intrigue. So. And then finally when the dust settled mm-hmm. and there was no more doubt we were yeah. going to be funded to do it. Then we, very reminiscent of the, the day that John Kennedy announced uh, the Apollo program in 1961. Mm -hmm. The guy that was running NASA, Jim Webb, Mm -hmm. called his senior staff together, and this is documented history, and he said, well, boys, this is very 1960s, well, boys, we got what we wanted, now what do we do? (laughs) We were saddled with the following challenge. Uh, We had four years and two months to get this launched, or it would wait a decade, because we had to launch in a single three-week launch window where Jupiter was in position to, 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 to slingshot. Boost. Yeah, to give you an or- right? orbital boost. And on top of that, NASA funded us with a budget that was one-fifth Voyager. And here we were going farther. Yeah, sure. Right? And I had many colleagues that wrote me and said, uh, uh, again, you won, but you lost, because you guys, no one can pull this off in this small amount of time. It's never been done for an Outer Planets mission. And then on top of it, you have to somehow do it five times less expensively. How are you going to figure that out? You know, so you guys are going to work on this for a couple of years and get canceled because you're going to fail on one front or another. And we just have an amazing team of people who signed up for 52 weeks a year, round the clock, uh, forget weekends, and we made it. So 52 weeks a year, four years, 2006. By the way, just out of interest, I, I, I don't know, was Pluto demoted before or after you launched? Uh, about eight months after we launched. Okay, so when you la- when you so launched, we Pluto were flying through planet. the asteroid belt. It might have been pretty demoralizing, I suppose. <laughs> if it, the week you launched, it had been demoted. But okay, so the launch, of course, all of that depends on you know all of that work, all of that effort. If if the launch fails, and it must have been a very there have been a, probably a few moments in your last uh, twenty years that have really been tense. That was well, probably you know every space mission. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, launch day is make or break. You know, yeah, you know yeah. you're going to have a big day, yeah. regardless of the outcome. Yeah. It's going to be memorable the yeah. rest of your life. And as I said, I've been on 29 of these, um, and I was actually on one where it exploded in front of my very eyes at the launch site. Oh, and it was the launch of the space shuttle Challenger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, which I had my very first PI shuttle experiment aboard. Oh wow. And I was project scientist on one of the satellites that it was carrying. And all that work yeah. gone. Well, in that but case, worse. Where there were people there. there were yeah. there were people who I knew, yeah, um, uh, who were I considered friends on the crew. Um, it was tragic, and uh, so anyway, so when it came to the day to launch New Horizons, you mm-hmm. know, you know everything's on the line, and yeah. this is not like Voyager or most of the other first missions to planets where we sent two. Yeah, you know, you have Mariner three and four yeah. to Mars, yeah. and only Mariner four made it, yeah. and you know, and uh, the Vikings, the Voyagers, the the pioneers, they're all. Twins. We didn't. That's part of how we saved the money to keep it. I was wondering. Was it originally planned to be twins, or, or? Uh, originally in the '90s, we mm. wanted two for scientific reasons. It's, yeah, uh, we just couldn't afford that. And I, I've always been a big believer in eighty percent of something yeah. is is worth way more than one hundred percent of nothing. nothing. Yeah, absolutely. So everything depended on that launch. And of course, it was successful. I mean, the book, mm-hmm. look at the cover. It's yeah, a spoiler yeah, alert yeah, right, yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah. There's a picture well, of Pluto. And, yeah. You know, and yeah. the 10-year journey was successful. And, and all the flyby of us was successful. recognize you from late night news knows it was successful as well. I guess, I guess. You know, New Horizons, uh, 
it's big science like particle physics. 2,500 men and women worked to build New Horizons, gonna, the oh, launch 2,500, okay. And the, the nuclear power supply. It was a big project. Was there, uh, I, I don't want to dwell too much, uh, with Cassini and, I mean, was there any, uh, when the nuclear power supply, was there any, people get all worried about nuclear power supplies, even if it's a small nuclear power supply. Was there any issues there that you had to do? Well, with? NASA has a very thorough process mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to get launch approval and to prove sure. that it will be safe, even sure. if the rocket explodes, the that the, the, the power supply will be self-contained. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, we had to achieve approval by 42 different state and federal agencies. Boy, I wouldn't have the you know, the Coast Guard, wow. the Navy, the FAA, NASA, the Department of Energy, the state of Florida, Brev Brevard County, the 42 of those. Yeah, gee, see, this is why I'm happy I'm a theoretical physicist. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot of so paperwork. Yeah, it's paperwork, but at least I get to do it, you know, and, um, and the paperwork involves calculations. But, but it's, what it turned out, you know, um, in the, after Three Mile Island in the 70s, yeah. and so for missions that were launching in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of baggage left over about flying nuclear. Yeah. And they got approval, but they had protesters and yeah, real concerns. I'm sure, I remember. By the 2000s, um, and part of it, I think, is due to just, you know, um, uh, the increase of carbon in the atmosphere sure. and its effects on climate. Um, uh, nuclear is actually looking greener. And, and we have very is. little in the way of protests. Oh, that's good. Very, that's interesting. Very but people just are afraid of the word radioactivity when they don't realize it. And, and, you know, I'll probably do another program at this, that not only is radioactivity a lot easier to detect than, say, pollution from carbon, but it's, you know, in terms of, of the number of people who have been impacted it's, uh, on Earth compared to coal burning, it's, a, it's, a, it's far less. And, but, but the word, but somehow radioactivity, because of nuclear weapons, is a scary word. But it's a lot easier to detect a small radioactive source than it is a, 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 a carcinogen in the atmosphere in many ways. But anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. Okay, so 2006, and then it took how many years to get to Pluto? Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Yeah. But the interesting, I mean, and, and again, Chasing New Horizons tells the story, yeah. but when Voyager flew across the solar system, they had this lavish budget and yeah. 450 people. That Think of that as like the Starship Enterprise was yeah. their flight crew. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. It's about the same crew size as, yeah. as Shatner had. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Or at least <laughs> as Kirk had, because <laughs> it's just fictional. <laughs> New Horizons, because in part because we had so much less budget, but also because of the advance of computing technology, so we could automate a lot yeah. of processes. We did the whole flight with 50 people. Wow. Uh, that's the flight control team. That's the engineering team, the science team, management, everybody, 50 belly buttons. And so that entire nine and a half years, we were furiously busy. Sure, yeah. Sure. I mean, there was never there a year was, off. So, okay, I was going to say, it's not as if the, it's 50 the whole time. It's not as if we just say, okay, let's go home for a year. It's out there and we just, we'll come back in a year and see where it is. Well, people <laughs> famously knew that this spacecraft, one of the things we did to reduce the size of the flight control team mm -hmm. was we more or less invented... Uh, the the real application of spacecraft hibernation techniques. So spacecraft takes care of itself most yeah. of the time. Yeah. And people thought we were hibernating. They would say, like, what do you do? Yeah. Do you work on something else? I mean, what, you know, are you bored? And we're like behind the scenes doing the work of 450 people to yeah. plan this flyby, which is a one shot, and all yeah. the backup plans and all the yeah. training plans and all the public engagement. And on top of it, fly the spacecraft, navigate it to Pluto, keep the instruments scientifically calibrated. Okay, so one of the problems, of course, is, is, is uh, dynamics, just planetary dynamics, uh, uh, Newtonian dynamics to some extent, but uh, making sure that you got, uh, you know, when you're aiming to Pluto and you've got to adjust things, and uh, were there concerns or surprises on the way about whether you were, because as we learned, as presumably as you learned more about the gravitational dynamics in the outer solar system, you had to adjust the, the trajectory to make sure you got to where you wanted to go. Were there concerns about that or any issues? Or? Well, there was a lot of work to make sure that we, we got to the right place at the mm -hmm. right time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I remember asking our navigation team, our prime navigation team one time, how do I know that you're going to the same Pluto I'm going? You know, <laughs> right? Because there are lots of reference frames mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and most, most mistakes in spaceflight boil down to some miscommunication between human beings. Sure, like right? uh, metric versus... Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And it could be something very subtle. Yeah. So I actually hired an independent navigation team uh, um, to, to, to have a double check on all the work, not in an adversarial way, sure, but, but in a way of, look, we got one shot at this. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, and, and the position of Pluto was not 
uh, as well known as the other planets, primarily because there'd already been first missions to them that nailed that down. Um, And we had to arrive to make... It's amazing. We have, a, we have a very sophisticated spacecraft in some ways. There's mm-hmm. AI aboard, for example, mm-hmm. because the light travel time is so long. For most malfunctions, it has to be able to take care of itself. Absolutely. It can't just radio for home like an Earth orbiter. In the light travel time to Pluto... It- Nine hours round trip. Nine, nine hours round trip. So, you know, you, all the fuel could leak away, yeah. the fuel leak, before mm-hmm. you could respond from the Earth. Yeah. And uh, lots of other problems could be catastrophic unless you had the intelligence on board to detect faults and then run down a checklist, even branching based upon Mm. conditions to solve the problem. So in some ways, New Horizons is extremely sophisticated. Was was there a surprise though? I mean, were there, were, were, did it just, was a textbook or did you discover you had to do something dramatic in order to make, to, to be where you wanted to be? Was there, was there any moment? Not dramatic, but Herculean. Oh, really? We had to do uh, a lot of homework to pin down Pluto's orbit. We had to go back and take glass uh, uh, plates from the 1930s, astronomical plates, mm-hmm. and reanalyze them with modern techniques to increase the arc length and, and drop the error bars on the known position of Pluto. Wow. We had to track our spacecraft with a, a technique uh, that involves quasars um, as distant reference frames to make sure that we knew where it was and where it was going. Yeah. We had to take images on approach of Pluto against the star field and ship them home and analyze them quickly to determine the difference but down to the pixel. Where is Pluto compared to where it should be if we're in the right place? And from the difference, compute homing burns that would correct and not only correct our position to arrive at the right place. We had to arrive after nine and a half years within 450 seconds because the spacecraft doesn't actually see the data from its instruments. It can't tell I'm, 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 okay. I'm off. I'm not oh, looking at the target. Can you imagine right? You take a picture After of all that. Empty space. Exactly. Yeah. Or even, you know, half. Yeah, yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the timing, because everything's moving. The spacecraft's going 32,000 miles an hour. Pluto's going, you know, in its heliocentric yeah. orbit at yeah. many thousands of miles per hour. Yeah. All the satellites are rotating in their yeah. orbits at speeds of like yeah. a kilometer per second. And the spacecraft knows its position and it has an ephemeris. Um, it can compute for where all the targets are. Mm-hmm. And based on knowing the time and the time of arrival and where it is and where those things ought to be, it does the trigonometry and points and points again and points again as it flies through. But it's doing it what we call open loop. It's not seeing if those images are actually centered. It, yeah. And so we had to very accurately navigate. Yeah, you had 450 to seconds error maximum after nine and a half years. It's just, uh, yeah, that's, it's amazing. You know, several and it hundred million very, seconds. Again, it must have been a very tense moment. We'll get, you know, I wanted to spend a long time. I, mean, I want to talk about the science and I want to talk about the, con- the greater context. Uh, but I think it's important for people to realize the efforts that are required to actually get to the results. We just see the results, but it's just an, an amazing, amazing task of, of, as you point out, so many people. But the first, so the first image of Pluto, uh, well, of course, you're looking at it from, you know, far away, but when you're close enough, and you're worried that you may be pointing in the wrong direction. Just walk me through that. Because, of course, you get the data, but it takes a long time to answer. So the data takes four and a half hours to come from the, right. from the, from the uh, spacecraft to yeah, you. And then how long before you know you've actually got a picture of the planet? Tens of seconds. Tens of seconds. Typically. Okay. Typically. You know, yeah. uh, the secure internet that routes it from the yeah. tracking station to... to um, to our mission control yeah. at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics yeah. Lab. They then reroute it to Boulder where our science operations center uh, servers are. Uh, and then uh, we are looking at files being placed on uh, certain directories. Yeah. Um, and that whole process is, is typically minutes. Minutes. We have then, a high cadence pipeline that, but of that course runs all the time. Okay, but of course, that, I mean, that's just know you have something and then you have to analyze, then you have to reduce the data and get a, an image. Right. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell <laughs> if it's the, the entire planet or half the planet or, or if it's none. Dark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, those are really see, interesting you star see around, You see it's round and you say, oh, it's a planet because I know for all those 1,100 people told me it wasn't a triangle. So that's right. Exactly. Okay. Well, look, I want you, for the listeners, you won't be able to see this, but of course you probably see on the internet. I just, at the end of all of this, uh, you've got these beautiful images, and it's not just images, and that's the point I want to get to. I remember when I first saw this, I was just shocked, as, as you were. I mean, I tended to assume that Pluto was this ball of ice out there and may not be very interesting. And, uh, of course, that's, that's 
forgive me, but that's that's as a cosmologist or a particle physicist or an astrophysicist. But but I, I was prepared to see an interesting object. Mm-hmm. But what 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 surprises me is what always surprises me. That every day I'm surprised if I'm not surprised. Every time we open a new window on the universe, we find out right even in our own backyard. I mean, I worry about things that are the other end of the universe or the earliest moments of the Big Bang. But in our own backyard, there are incredible discoveries waiting to be made. And so these images, which I just want to go through because they're, they're, they're if, so pretty. Uh, if but, I may tell a story. Sure. You know, uh, we had the advantage of, of exploring Pluto a generation after uh, the whole exploration of all the planets from Mercury to Neptune. Yeah. And I told my team over and over again, they got tired of it, I'm sure. I would say, look, every single first mission to a planet got it wrong. Yeah. You know, what we thought of Mars was completely wrong. What we mm-hmm. thought of Venus, completely wrong. Every, absolutely, every time we've been Who wrong. expected volcanoes on Io? Yeah, you know, yeah, the first mission yeah. to Jupiter. Yeah. And going down the list, you know, uh, oceans inside of satellites, yeah. you know. Uh, and so I said, look, our challenge is to take all that perspective gained from all those different kinds of planets we've been mm-hmm. to, and let's try to get the ninth one right beforehand, <laughs> right? And I'd like to say we got an A for exploration. <laughs> Everything worked. Yeah. We got an F for scientific <laughs> predictive ability that, because that's the best Pluto thing. Floridus. But, but being, that's another thing I often tell people that people don't understand is that scientists love to be wrong. Because it means there's so much more to learn. I mean, if, if you would predict it right, it would be a much, in my opinion, far less interesting. Well, here's, here's but here's the fact we learn how the solar system works in a different way. Just one of the many aspects that makes Pluto the planet fascinating is the discovery of this vast million square kilometer nitrogen glacier that was born yesterday yeah. on a world that should have cooled off and died billions of years ago. I didn't have a single glaciologist on my team. Oh, Just, interesting. You know, who thought there would be glaciers on Pluto? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, as soon as the data's coming in, I'm like on the phone hiring some of the world's best <laughs> planetary glaciologists. Well, that's what I, when I looked, when I'm, the image that I'm looking at now, and, you know, it's, it's one of the classic images of Pluto, but the first thing that amazed me is, hey, there's areas without craters. There's, there's, there's dynamics. This is, this is not a frozen this static This is a object. living, dynamic place. Yeah, and, and, and you look and, and you see these incredible... Vistas. I don't. I mean, you, you know, there, you can walk us through a few of these. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend. I mean, uh, we don't have time to go through the, all of the, all of the aspects. But, but this incredible glacier, this incredibly, this plane that looks untouched is in 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 cosmic time. Uh, just shocked me. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We can't find a single crater on a million square kilometers of terrain. Whereas, look just below it in the image, uh, uh, you see terrains as old as the. Birth of the solar system. We age date those from the number of craters yeah. um, to be four billion years old, four yeah. billion plus. And and if you look at that image further, uh, this is this is not anything like our highest resolution, but you can see vast mountain ranges, the size scale of the Rockies. Yeah, sure. You can see uh, faults, tectonics in effect, yeah. um, and uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So one of the things that uh, you know I hadn't anticipated that that I don't think any of you had either necessarily. But so this means it's dynamical. But do we now know what the dynamics is? What what I mean? What's driving it? What's driving it? We don't. Yeah, we don't. You know, um, uh, if you reduce planetary geophysics to a very simple everyday analogy, you know, if you have a cup of coffee and next to it a vat of coffee, the mm-hmm. cup of coffee is going to cool off a lot quicker yeah, sure. because the little guy's got a higher surface area to mass ratio. Yeah. So it can radiate mm-hmm. more per unit mass than, than the, the, the yeah. vat. Mm-hmm. So by the same analogy, big planets can hold their heat. Yeah, sure. And little planets should cool off. We see that. Look at the Earth's moon. Sure. The Earth's moon is quite a bit larger than Pluto. Yeah. And to planetary scientists, something we call a planet, by the yeah. way, the fifth <laughs> terrestrial planet. But, but the moon is for most intents and purposes a dead world. Sure. That, that its geologic engine, not completely, because it's an interesting place. It, there are some things going on mm-hmm. now, but on a large scale, it died within about a billion years or so mm-hmm. after its yeah. formation yeah. because it lost that heat. Yeah. Pluto, being much smaller, should have had an interesting early life. And That's exactly... I thought you'd be looking at a fossil of the early yeah. solar system, which is one of the interesting aspects of it, of course, but, but that's what I think all of us thought. So here we find a world that's alive on... Its atmosphere is dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's got climate cycles. It's got global change. It's got an ocean in the interior. It's got glaciers that must be renewing themselves. We see direct It has evidence. an ocean in the interior? I guess I didn't realize it does. that. Wow. That's... There's, and there's, there's evidence for that. I mean, What's physical, the evidence? physical evidence for that. How, how do you know? And it, it has to do... Well, there were models predicting 
Mm-hmm. You know, because Pluto's about 30% made of water ice, mm-hmm. and as you go down in depth and the pressure increases, yeah. the temperature is sure. connected through the ideal gas law, it's going to increase. Yeah. And you're going to reach a point where that water ice should liquefy mm-hmm. under temperature and pressure. Mm-hmm. This is actually common in icy satellites sure. and small planets. Sure. And, and we started to discover this in the 80s and 90s, and now oceans inside of these kinds of worlds are are very common. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the moons, yeah, lots of moons have oceans, right. but but you actually but but that's a prediction. But the, but uh, yeah, so I'm getting to the yeah, to okay, the evidence. Okay. So then we get to Pluto and we find this giant nitrogen glacier, mm-hmm. which strangely just happens to be diametrically opposed to the synchronous satellite Sharon, the size of the state oh, of Texas. Okay. This is in a stable equilibrium point. Mm-hmm. This mass con, this mass concentration is at the only place it could be to, to create a stable situation. Now, the interesting thing about that, and there's only one more step involved in the logic, mm-hmm. is that it could have been born anywhere else on the planet, and uh, it had to migrate there. Mm-hmm. And the only way it can migrate is if there's a nearly frictionless S- surface. surface down oh. below so that you can get the slippage. Okay. Um, so that's a tidal force. And I say of, the only way. There are yeah, yeah, papers yeah, that, yeah, that, that s- suggest other ways. But, but the idea is that there's a tidal force from, from yeah. Sharon that's moving that. And, and, uh, right. And it ends up at this... It's, it's like something, you know, uh, 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 from a detective show, right? You get this forensic clue. It's exactly opposite Sharon. Yeah. So that, and that's, that's not that's just a, an accident. Yeah. It's all highly unlikely to be just an accident. Exactly. Let's, let's, in fact, that's the way we do things tonight. It's likely, not likely, highly unlikely, highly likely... People don't realize that the that the everything has an uncertainty, and of course, if you're doing observations as opposed to sort of experiments, you have to recognize that there are intrinsic uncertainties. When you make claims, you have to be able to label right. the uncertainty too. So we would like to go back with an orbiter for a lot of reasons, yeah. but one of them would be with uh, 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 being able to do the gravimetrics and to have ground penetrating radars to actually find this ocean with direct evidence, not indirect circumstantial evidence. Okay, well, it'd be nice. Yeah, take a while to go back. <laughs> it took a while to get there the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I want to go through. I mean, I, I want to get to other other things as well. But some of these images are just amazing. And and you know, if there's anything I'm zipping by that you want to mention for the audience, you can. But but I just well, like I should mention at, that everything that 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 uh, those who can see this are looking at. And anytime you look at a picture of Pluto, remember everything is nearly at absolute zero. Yeah, forty Kelvin, four hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, below, below zero. And, and then. Mm. Uh, it's a sci-fi world. None of this is made of common stuff we're used to. I mean, it's true, the atmosphere is made of mostly nitrogen like the Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But the surface is made of nitrogen ice, methane ice, that's a fuel here on Earth, uh, and carbon monoxide ice. And then the darker areas are made of um, uh, uh, organic uh, organic gunk that that Carl Sagan first dubbed the tholin. Mm -hmm. Um, These are not living organics, but these are... Uh, carbon hydrogen uh, based molecules yeah. from organic chemistry and it's in by the way that was another I remember back when when it was a surprise that there was organic that there was organics and I mean, I mean we realize now that in many ways the basic building blocks of organic molecules that later on became life are, are abundant everywhere and there's particularly chemistry. in the outer solar system yeah in the outer solar system and there's chemistry going on there's ultraviolet radiation there's lots of and chemistry that's what causes the red color actually uh, is the the interaction of the radiation field with the surface constituents that you can reproduce in a laboratory. You could start with nitrogen, carbon monoxide, and methane on a coal finger in a vacuum chamber, mm-hmm. and we've done this, mm-hmm. and you shine a solar simulator on it, so a lamp that produces the same, same spectrum, triple. and, and uh, you, you will find that the resulting residue has the same color and spectrum as this material. Right. And those are important experiments. Well, I, I know in a later program we're going to talk about origins of life issues, but the, 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 the key question is just how, how, how rich what, came, what eventually became the Earth was in terms of preparation in the outer solar system and beyond uh, is really an interesting question. And you know, the organics uh, on the Earth uh, were not originally there. Yeah. When the Earth formed, it was molten yeah, from the course. heat of accretion yeah. and destroyed all those molecules. Yeah. And so then after it cooled, there had to be a process of late veneering. Of course. And a lot of that came probably from the asteroid belt, but a lot of it also came from the Kuiper belt. Yeah, in fact, I mean, that's what we'll talk about one of the things we can learn. But I mean, uh, when I wrote a book a few years ago, uh, maybe a decade ago, it was still the question of where water on Earth even came from 
because it was highly debated. Yes. And uh, it's still, we're, we, the, the, we've learned a lot more from looking at, from being able to measure uh, objects in the outer solar system. But, but the key, these are key questions that are relevant, not just to learning about the universe, but to why we're here. So let's, let's ask it now. Why are we interested in this Well, stuff? you know, it's, it's fascinating. Of all the uncountable number of species that have arisen on this wonderful planet Earth, mm -hmm. um, we're the weirdos that are actually the universe looking back on itself and asking yeah. who are we and why yeah. are we here and what is this place all about? And, uh, you know, even my very highly intelligent Labrador, <laughs> you know, which can do many, many things <laughs> that require real intelligence, yeah. um, has no clue that there's a universe, yeah. much less, uh, you know, is, is you interested in universe. why. You are as universe. Yeah, pretty much yeah. my wife, she <laughs> feeds it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, exactly. No, and, and, and so, I mean, obviously this is exploration, questioning, but, but there's a real connection. If we want to understand ultimately how life arose on Earth and how, and whether we're unique, whether we're alone in the universe, these, we, have to, we have to ask these questions. In fact... What I think a lot of people don't realize when we look, we're looking for exoplanets, which we'll get to. When we're looking for life elsewhere in the universe, when people talk about habitable planets and a lot of other things, I'm often quite skeptical because what we really need to know, we don't even understand the origin of life here on Earth. We know lots of factors, but if we want to learn what's possible out there, a large part of it is learning what actually happened here, which means exploring our own solar system. Yeah, to an extent, but I'm also going to disagree with you just a little bit. Good. Because we have learned... You know, in the in the fifties and sixties, when uh, before we really had spaceflight, and mm -hmm. we used telescopes to look out across the solar system, and the the scientists of the day looked, and they couldn't find any oceans anywhere. Yeah, and the Earth is unique. It turns out, uh, the Earth is unique. It's it, but it's a weirdo. It wears its oceans on the outside. <laughs> oceans are common, <laughs> but they're on the inside. Same, yeah. And the interesting thing about those oceans, and I've written a, a couple of scientific papers on this, is the that. You don't, the, the concept of a habitable zone is very geocentric. Of course. Right? Warm, liquid water inside of worlds that can, in principle, um, uh, seed the development of biology mm -hmm. can take place anywhere in the solar system, even at Pluto with a surface temperature of 400 Fahrenheit, minus 400 Fahrenheit. Um, if that ocean is really there, as we strongly suspect, um, it could be an abode for life. So, it actually changes our perception again that we should not be so geocentric. We should it's not be so myopic of, or, or so solipsistic in the sense that we assume we are what 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 that we are necessarily typical. The, or, precisely, the Copernican revolution continues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It continues in every way, out outside and inside. And you know, in fact, what you just said is is true not just for Pluto and not just for the planets. What we're learning on Earth is that it could be that there's a lot more life underneath the surface of the Earth than above. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's deep it's weird biosphere. To think, and it's so amazing. We live in a time when, when we're just discovering that, when people kind of feel like, oh, well, we know everything about the Earth. We don't. We don't. The, 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 the nature of life, even on our home planet, is still ripe for discovery. And if you just put a little more thought into it, you think about these, these ocean worlds that have their oceans on the interior. In many ways, they're actually better suited to the development of life. They don't require a magnetosphere for protection. Yeah. Uh, they don't care if they're catastrophic planetary impacts yeah. because they're up hundreds of kilometers on the surface. They're not going to damage the well, ocean. Well, as, as, as people have said in the origin of life on Earth, it's, it meant most many people think it originated deep in the ocean. And one of the reasons would be that it's at least protected from some but this impacts. is much more protection. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, those worlds don't even care if there's a star around. You could have interstellar planets and, yeah. that have been ejected but interior is still warm and having an ocean. You don't care about stellar flares. You don't care about nearby supernovae. They're actually pretty hospitable for the development of, of life. Whether, I mean, be horrible for astronomy because yeah. there's a roof over your yeah, head. Yeah, exactly. Right? I was just going to say, I mean, the astronomers there would say, wow, look at the, look there, at the universe. It's full of water. That's, there is no universe. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just all Well, their all universe us. would be their water. But, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and where we can get to that, I often... often uh, um, when people talk about anthropics, about what's likely and what's not likely, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it depends on what you're in. If it, you know, uh, uh, an, intel an intelligent fish down in one of those things would say, why is the universe made of water? The answer is, if, if it wasn't full of water, you wouldn't be there to ask the exactly. question. And, and so a lot of, there's a lot of selection effects. And, and when we're looking at the universe and trying to understand things we don't understand, like the nature of life or, or whether we're unique or whether the, in my own area, the fundamental 
parameters of cosmology are are selected or as some people would like to think designed, which they're not. Tuned. Uh, yeah, tuned. They're not. Uh, you have to ask these questions. Well, you know, it's weird that 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 the universe seems to be tuned for life, but they don't. But the much more sensible thing is that life seems to be tuned for the universe. Is that is that we only evolve in a in a situation in which we can evolve. And it's not too surprising to discover that it's quite conducive, because if it wasn't quite conducive for living, you wouldn't be there to ask the question. And it's probably true on each of these planets. Well, you know, it was upsetting to find out that the, the, the planets move. Yeah. And then it was, you know, it was upsetting to find out. For some out, people. For some people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was upsetting to find out that um, uh, there are planets that are very different from us uh, in some way. Mm. You know, uh, the, the Earth is not typical at all. Um, and uh, the same thing is true. And it's upsetting that there are countless numbers of planets. For we some just people, deal with but it. for others, it's just a new chance to learn how strange and wonderful the universe is. Every time we learn that our perceptions of the universe are different than we thought, we should celebrate because it means we're living in a wonderful time of exploration well, and I, discovery. I believe it's our responsibility as scientists to adapt to new data and not to be dogmatic about it. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can be skeptical and we can require a high standard of yeah. proof, right? And But I think that's what being a scientist... So we, we, we all have our own pet theories and things that are hard to get let go of. And, and Max Planck once said that, you know, physics precedes one funeral at a time <laughs> as the old rise or, you know, die. But, but I think the point is that we get, what, physicists and, uh, and scientists of all types get, get dragged kicking and screaming by the data. Uh, ultimately, they have to give up their cherished notions. And that, that's the great thing about being a scientist, because you get trained to say, you know, I really, this is what I really thought would be really neat, but you know what, it's wrong. Yeah. And, and I, I tell students that I, I kind of hope everyone has that experience sometime in their career of educational career or afterwards, discovering that some cherished notion of yours is wrong is liberating because it opens your mind to a new world universe of possibilities. I couldn't agree more. Well, let, 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 speaking of possibility, I want to just zip over there. What was your biggest surprise of, of, the whole, of this whole mission, of Pluto? Because well, I want to talk about later the Kuiper Belt. Well, I'll give you the same answer I've given before because I really okay. say there is, there is not a single thing. There really is a trifecta. Okay. Okay. And the first was how complex Pluto is. Mm -hmm. Generally, smaller worlds are less diverse, uh, and yet we found a degree of complexity on Pluto itself that rivals Earth and Mars, despite their much larger size. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this whole discovery that Pluto is alive and dynamic and still evolving on vast scales mm. when a uh, uh, geophysical paradigm would tell you that can't be mm -hmm. uh, is, is just as big a discovery. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. the third discovery me, is amazing. not scientific. Mm -hmm. I was really overwhelmed by the public's fascination with this exploration on a scale that NASA had not seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really heartwarming to see how much people like science and love exploration and want to see good news in our time. Yeah. You know, human beings succeeding at something tough and doing something a little larger than life. That connection and all the public talks I've given since then, it's been almost mm -hmm. four years, the way people come up and tell me what it meant to them, how it changed their life, it's how, uh, you know, young people who say nothing, we get told all the good big things happened before we were born this is the big thing in my life. Yeah. To hear that from a co-ed or to hear, uh, I, as I literally did when we were on this book tour, a man stand up at a book reading and literally start choking up and saying, I was on the verge of suicide until wow. this happened and I decided life was worth living. Look at the universe. Oh, to have things like that happen to you. It's just an amazing thing. Or a mother thing. Tell, tell you her son was a slacker and failing mm. until he saw this and said, I want to grow up and be an engineer. I want to do that. And now he's a straight A kid. It's, yeah, it's wonderful to have, you don't know your impact and it's just, it must be an incredibly heartwarming thing. It is. So let, let's leave Pluto and Sharon for the moment. I want to get to, the, we're showing a picture of this, of this uh, snowman. Um, uh, talk about it. Yeah, well, this is our, uh, our, our first Kuiper Belt object mm -hmm. uh, exploration, a billion miles past Pluto on January 1st this year, 2019. I remember watching you January 1st celebrating. Yeah. When, and this, I think, when, in a, see, as hard it was as it was for me to imagine taking pictures of Pluto appropriately, I remember at this time thinking, my gosh, it's just a little object, you're zipping by it. You ha how long did, what was the window of time in order to be able to get a picture of that and to, and to know you, I mean, this, see, Pluto had been just, 
studied for a long time before. This object hadn't been. We discovered it in 2014. Yeah. And then and we had... hunted it down in the dark yeah. in the deep outer solar system. It flew by much closer than Pluto mm-hmm. at the same speed and had to motion compensate yeah. and arrive even more accurately than at Pluto. Uh, what this team pulled off is is uh, I was shocked you were able to do that and then, amazing that it took the picture and it didn't miss it. I mean, it didn't. It's it's in the middle of the frame. My goodness! I, there you go again. And and for, for again for people, obviously people listening won't see this picture, but you've seen it on the New York Times and every other newspaper in the world. And and when it came out, uh, uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, in a way, I, I almost find uh, this more almost more poetic than 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 Pluto in a sense that I'll, I'll talk to you about in a second. But one of the things I've wondered, or, or people may wonder, it looks very bright. Why does it look very bright? Uh, that's because the way the image is processed. It yeah. actually has a reflectivity of about 7%. Mm-hmm. 93% of all the light that falls on it is absorbed by the surface. It's darker than garden variety dirt. But there isn't a lot of light falling on that surface either. The sun is way over there. It's really the, kind the of amazing. The sun is 4 billion miles away. Yeah. But we have very sensitive cameras yeah. and telescopes that were built to operate at these light levels. I, and okay. apparently the engineers did it right. Yeah, I know. Right? And, but, but people should realize what, a, what an engineering feat this is. It isn't as bright so as the, it looks so, here. So, you know, Pluto's the size of the United States, yeah. approximately. And this is the size of greater Washington, D.C. Yeah. And like I said, we had to hunt it down in the dark. Uh, yeah. Again, only one shot. Yeah. And, and this is a wild and woolly... This is the first thing we've ever sent a spacecraft to that is uh, completely primordial. Yeah, that is so small that it can't have a strong geologic engine to cause it to evolve, and at the same time has never been close to the sun and warmed. And so even Pluto, that's out far, where it, it, the sunlight can't cause it to evolve the way that mm-hmm. it interacts with comets and asteroids and planets. Yeah, um, but it's large enough to have this geologic engine we see with with everything from oceans yeah. to mountains yeah. to tectonics. This is the first thing we've ever been to, which is a relic, a well-preserved relic of the formation days. And it is amazing, this place. It is bizarre. It is alien. It is Well, that's why, to me, when I look at that picture, and I remember thinking about it, and as I'm looking at it here now, and it, 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 it inspires me in a way that Pluto didn't, in the sense that I think of, of, I look at that, I see a few craters, but I think this thing has been there alone in the dark since the beginning of the solar system, four and a half billion years ago. And it will be there, it'll still be there, long after any record of you and I is now is gone and it's and it's out there in the dark alone and I and for some reason I just find that unbel- when I think about it I find it unbelievably poetic I guess yeah Every, everything about this uh, uh, is is uh, there's an emotional connection to something this alien it, it, this alien and and this primordial and that's a, I, I want to get why people may ask why do you want to go to the Kuiper belt with we want to be able to find fossils of the beginning, because we still, there's still so many questions we don't ha- have answers to about how the solar system formed, what the conditions were that eventually led to the water that led to the earth. And, and to do that, you have to go out and, fo- and see these primordial objects. You do, just the same way that archaeologists have to make a dig to find out, you know, uh, what things were like in past centuries and millennia. What's the biggest surprise about the solar system itself? Is that, is that it's, it's typical or not typical, that it's unique or not unique? Uh, Based on what you, you know, that and what we've seen now from exoplanets. and Well, I would, I would give you two responses. One is that from the exploration of the solar system, this amazing enterprise you know, stretches back 50 years now, even 55, mm-hmm. going on 60 years since the earliest missions to the planets. Just how rich nature is. Yeah. That every place we've gone, it just knocks, blows our doors off. Whenever, every time I've, I've learned about the discovery of a new planetary system, Almost every time we've discovered what we thought our conventional wisdom told us what couldn't happen, happens. Yeah. Giant planets in, in the inner part of the solar system. Exactly. And all and these that's things the we other, didn't think could happen. The other thing I was going to say is then from what we've learned about exoplanet systems, we've learned that our solar system is very atypical. Yeah. It's, right? Everyone always... And that's, it, again, what, not what we thought. Yeah, we, we had a great little tidy logical story of why you should have rocky planets on the inside and gas yeah. giants on the yeah, outside. Yeah, it and sounded so good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And nature, you know, is just so amazing. The imagination of nature is so much greater than the imagination of humans, which is why we have to keep exploring. 
Why we can't just have theoretical physicists like me in rooms? Because we come up, if we figured out what's happening, the picture we have would not be the picture of the universe. We have to look outward because it keeps surprising us. We need the exploration. We need the explorers like you and the missions that you develop. We I need think. the data. Yeah, the data. And that's the basis of science, even, I know even for theoretical theorists, physics. Data is a four-letter word. No, 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 no. <laughs> for me, I mean, that's what guides theorists. And I, at least yeah. I'm an old-fashioned kind of yeah. theoretical physicist that if, it, if the data... It doesn't matter whether it's elegant or beautiful or pretty. What matters is it correspond to reality, and the only way to know is to look out and find it. Right. It's what it's what really guides us, and it's what's yeah. amazing is in space exploration. Uh, it's why I love this field is that we get such big surprises all the time. They're not yeah. little surprises yeah. at all, and and they're close to home. As I say, as someone who's spends his time thinking about the beginning of the universe or the fundamental structure of matter or the end of the universe. You think there are, there are these great cosmic mysteries about our universe, and that's true. But it's so heartening to find out that close to home, and they're not that close at, at mm -hmm. Pluto or, the, or, or Ultima Thule, but uh, that, that there are still so many mysteries waiting to be solved. Now, you pointed out that you, you did this, this, this mission on a shoestring. And as I've often said, um, you can send a, a, a rover to Mars for the price of making a movie about sending Matt Damon to Mars. Mm -hmm. And it's this human versus robotic exploration. For me, I, I know the people are fascinated by putting astronauts out in space, but, but the science we can do with, with robotics, with, with, with autonomous missions, is, is, it, there's no question that that's the way we need to explore the universe, in my opinion. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, hear your... You, you, can be, you don't have to become as unpopular as I am by having said that just you now. You know, here we have to disagree, Lawrence. <laughs> oh, good, uh, good. Really, honestly. Uh, first, I know many of my geologists the, the robots the are fantastic, but, yeah. but it's a false dichotomy to choose between them. We need the robots um, and we need the humans. And if we're going to become a multi-planet species, if we're going to become spacefaring, I like to think that here, the beginning of the 21st century, this is where Star Trek is beginning. In beginning. But and, and we need all of that. And... And uh, we want to send humans into space in vast numbers. We want to have an insurance policy against what could happen to the well, Earth. The, yeah, we that's fine, but that's science fiction that's in a way. That's true, but, you know, but I think the point, I think well, yeah. what I worry about is giving people false hope in the near term. Sending humans into space is expensive and dangerous. Even, I mean, even, and, we, and I know that you're involved in near-Earth, uh, and the last thing I want to talk about is the commercialization of near-Earth mm. orbits, where we... Where, where we now know what we're doing enough that, that, that industry can take care of things. But sending, I, 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 maybe you disagree with me about this, I don't think the first mission to Mars of humans is going is gonna, to, the, the economics of that is going to allow a company to do it. It's got to be a government. Do you, well, if you listen to Elon Musk. I know it, if you listen to Elon Musk, but I don't the, agree with him. The case him. closes. Think, yeah, I know, but so I think you know, he's we wrong. we need visionaries like that. Oh, I you think know. we do need visionaries. And, and but, the, the exploration of North America and South America, the Americas, was very dangerous. Yeah. And countless people lost their lives. Yeah, but there that. weren't so many lawyers then. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story. No, I think I think the point is that when we have space tourism and the first space tourist dies, it's going to be it's what what we have to realize is it's a challenge. And part of the problem that I have, and maybe mm -hmm. I don't want to end on a negative note, but so but is that when we we have to realize that when we send humans into space, most of the money and design goes to make sure that they're they they come back alive or they stay alive if it's one way missions. When you send Mm -hmm. When you send a rover, if it crashes, it's a disaster. Or, or when, I mean, let's go back to that, to that mission of yours where, where your satellite exploded. Well, you were sad your satellite exploded, but you're much sadder that the, the, that the humans died in, that, in, the, in the Challenger explosion. You know, if and, I can say, mm -hmm. um, I think you're coming at this a little bit from the wrong perspective. Okay, good. Every, Educate me. Every form of, of transportation kills people. Yeah. People get killed in boating. People get killed in airplanes. People get killed in trucking. People mm -hmm. get killed skiing. Of course. The space flight is no different. And we just have to get used to the fact no, it's a, no, it's that, a, that space it's is a little more, little, little less welcome. It's worth it, too. Oh, yeah. No, I think, look, I think in the long run, if humans survive, and that's a big if, that we, we need to be, a, we'll, we will explore the universe. And I think, I think that human space travel is mostly for exploration, literally an adventure, adventure the human adventure. But for the moment, if you ask, if, if I asked you as a scientist, you have a certain amount of money and you want to explore the outer solar system, obviously you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, because, you well, know, you humans don't... Ask somebody like Steve Squires, yeah. PI Mars Rovers mm -hmm. missions that just finished after 15 spectacular years. Yeah. Um, Steve would tell you that what they did 
over years was about equivalent to what an Apollo crew could do in a weekend. I know my geologist friends at, in, in my in, in my department say that, and I, but then I also say you could send a thousand of them for the price of one geologist. So I like the idea that we don't agree on this. Uh, I I do think ultimately. I mean, if you ask me, would I like to go? Yeah. Would I like to be? Would I like to see it? Would I like to experience it? But I'll tell you one other thing. When I let me let me just come back to this. Mm-hmm. When I look at the picture of Ultimate Zulay, when I think of your spacecraft, when I think of the rovers, I have an attachment to your to the New Horizon mission that I might not to an to an astronaut, because I think of that as an entity, the New Horizons mm-hmm. uh, spacecraft as a, as an object that that that's out there alone doing its work autonomously, not needing food, not needing love, not needing companionship, even if it tweets every now and then. And I find that so remarkable that I almost feel more attached to those spacecraft than I would to an astronaut. I I would think of it a little differently. I'm talking about myself. You can choose how you want to think about it. Think of it when you sit down at the table for a meal. You have Mm -hmm. a knife, a fork, and a spoon. Mm-hmm. They're different tools. They're used for different purposes. It's really hard to do the soup with the fork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to cut the meat with mm-hmm. the spoon. Yeah. You need these different tools, and we need both human spaceflight and we need robotic spaceflight, and there's a very great synergy between them, and I'm convinced the future is a future with both advancing rapidly. Well, look, that's an optimistic view of the future, which is, which is great, and I hope, I hope you're right, and I certainly am convinced that however it advances, we'll, we'll, we will be amazed. And, and, the, and the, this, this time we spent together, I hope, demonstrates how amazing it is that, and how necessary it is to keep that window on the universe open and to keep being willing to be bold enough to propose things and spend 20 or 30 years thinking about it, doing it, exploring it, and discover, making new discoveries. And, and I know that you like to speak to people, and I, I think people who have been listening to this will realize that how much you enjoy doing it and will, will want to go hear you wherever you are and, and read the book as well, Chasing New Horizons. But where can they go to find more about you and, and, and the mission, any, any Twitter or, or web pages or anything like that? Sure. Well, you can Google New Horizons and find lots of resources from uh, websites to social media feeds. For myself, uh, it's very simple. Uh, at, at Twitter, I'm just Alan Stern, A-L-A-N-S-T-E-R-N. And, uh, and I have a website, it's alanstern.space. And uh, you can learn more about the, the books I write and uh, some of the other adventures I'm involved in uh, there. It's been a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you coming. Well, thanks thanks again for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Great. Lawrence. Take care. The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, Amelia Huggins, John and Don Edwards, and Rob Zepps. Directed and edited by Gus and Luke Holwerda. Audio by Thomas Amison. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects. And music by Rickolis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash originspodcast. <laughs>